Hello, Detroit and the world. Welcome to another episode of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from the Audio Wave Network Studios and is sponsored by the Ford Foundation and now a content partner to BridgeDetroit.com. I'm Orlando Bailey. And I'm Donna Givens-Davidson. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed during this podcast episode are those of the co-hosts and guests and not their sponsoring institutions. Now, let's start the show. We want to thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real people on the east side of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on all platforms. We drop a new episode every week, so be sure to turn on those notifications. Joining us today is Joel Harani Harris. Joel is the director of the Office of Sustainability and is the assistant director of the General Services Department at the City of Detroit. Joel, finally, welcome back to Authentically Detroit. Thanks so much. Great to have you. I'm so glad you're able to have me tonight. Yes, it's great. I'm, we're glad you're here. He's getting ready to say it's great to have you, but you know, <laughs> our, 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 our home is your home. So we're happy that you've you know, been able to join us. I think us. Joel hosts so many community forums that he is not used to being a guest. Yeah, he's not used to being an interviewer. He's used to being the convener. The convener. This yeah. is true. Been, this is true. Um, I, you probably convene more people in your position than anybody else who works for the city of Detroit. Disclaimer, this is just your opinion, but is that true? <laughs> we already did that at the beginning of the show. I was um, just teasing. <laughs> not sure, not sure, but uh, you know, planning does a lot of meeting with folks. So, yeah, I want to talk. We probably, we, I know we're going to get to this a little uh, later on, but I definitely want to talk about uh, the planning process that the Office of Sustainability curated a few years ago to develop an overall sustainable agenda for the city of Detroit, which I thought was. Absolutely amazingly done, Donna Givens-Davidson. I don't know about you, but I thought yeah. it was very, very well done. So um, how is this day finding each of you? Um, it's good. Yeah. It's good. You know, um, I'm back to uh, my senses. My mother has been relocated. She's happy. She's calling me all the time, making demands on me. And so, you know, she's doing better <laughs> she's now. Right. I was telling <laughs> the, the first time I met her mama, she was telling me what to do. She had come to an annual meeting and we had a bunch of stuff that we were giving out. And she was like, you know what? This is too much stuff for me to carry. She said, I'm going to go sit down. And what you're going to do is you're going to bring me all of the things to my table. Thanks. And she, I was like, yes, ma'am. Welcome and I didn't to even my know. Childhood. Welcome to my childhood. That's how it kind of went. But no, it's, it's, it's really a great thing. I just want to give a shout out. I know we do it at the end to Samaritan Manor, which is yeah. on the fourth floor of the Samaritan Center. I have to say that from the moment that she went there, she was just treated with kindness. The staff there are all wonderful. They even let Luna visit with me this oh, weekend. Nice. And so imagine my four-year-old, well, she's almost four, so I'm calling her four. Um, she's three and almost four-year-old granddaughter coming with me to visit somebody inside of a nursing home right now. She had a little mask on her face and I had the mask on my face and they gave her all of this candy and these chips. So she thought that she was trick-or-treating oh, wow it was nice. great wow <laughs> well, i took uh we took my my uh our kids to my my wife's uncle's home as well in flint last weekend mm -hmm. and it was amazing to see the faces of all the residents light up when they when they saw kids you know yeah. just kids being kids it was just like pretty cool so yeah it's I really know. great. You know, my mom had been in a place where they, you know, were so restrictive on visitation, we could barely see her. And the welcome and openness really makes a difference in the mental health of senior citizens. They need to see people they love. And so what a blessing that we were able to spend that time together. I mean, three generations right there, just missing the one, right? Was it four generations or three? Yeah, well, uh, if oh, Sarah right. had been there. That's yeah. true. Right. Uh -huh. Exactly. Yeah. You're That's right. amazing. Yeah. Joe, how is this day finding you? It's great. It's great. You know, as uh, uh, I'm, I'm happy that uh, more fall-like weather is in the air now. And uh, it's been pretty today, hasn't it? It's been gorgeous. Sun coming out. Finally, stopped raining. That was uh, that was a little much, but you know, doing yeah. good. I heard from residents that you know some folks got um, uh, water 
in their basements. I mean, it rained for a couple of days, you know. Yeah, it didn't stop for, I think, 36 hours. So, yeah. So. And so, you, you know, the calls are coming in. The calls are definitely coming in. But uh, we want to uh, welcome you once again, Joel. And it's time for Hot Takes. That's right. That's where we run down some of the week's top headlines in the city of Detroit. Today's hot takes are Jamon Jordan, Detroit's unofficial historian, is now its official one. That is by uh, Bryce Huffman uh, at Bridge of Detroit. So Jamon Jordan, um, who finally decided to be a guest on our show this past summer, has been named in a ceremonial title uh, and in a ceremonial role as Detroit's first historian. Um, and it was a big to do uh, yesterday, big press conference. He was all over television. And we want to say bravo to Jamon Jordan. I mean, I mean, I mean, who there's nobody else that we can think of that is more deserving of this this honor than Jamon Jordan. I can't even think of anybody who is as deserving as Jamon. You know, <laughs> he's amazing. And, you know, what, what I really, really hope is that we move from an unofficial historian to an official historian. Right. Because I mean, to an official historian to somebody who has more than a ceremonial title. Right. He needs to be paid. Reparations is on the ballot. And mm -hmm. we can't even have a serious conversation about reparations without having a serious conversation about Detroit's history. You better say and that. nobody knows our history better than Jamon Jordan. And so, you know, city council, um, I, I think it's possible people are going to vote for reparations next Tuesday. Um, and if they do, um, then I certainly hope the city council looks at him as the preeminent expert. I serve on an advisory board for the Wright Museum. Yeah. And there's been a reparations task force on Tuesday evenings. So I, um, I'm a member oh, yeah, who yeah. doesn't go because I'm doing this instead. <laughs> um, <laughs> but Jamon has helped lead the way. And I really think that if we're going to make him this official historian, then we've got to begin integrating his, our history into, um, both our, you know, public, um, communications and you know all of that but also our public policy mm, and that yeah. kind of connects to you joel i mean you know when we look at sustainability issues and i do that in my class mm -hmm. the sustainability Her issues class that we at columbia have right university now, <laughs> 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 we always try to locate those sustainability issues in an understanding of the history of detroit how did these people get to live in places which are so climate vulnerable it was not coincidence all over the United States. One of the people who is helping to teach that class through his book, Toxic Debt, is somebody who you may know, Josiah Rector. I don't actually know him, no. Okay, he was um, he, he got his PhD from Wayne State, and he um, studied and worked in this community for a number of years and has written an amazing book that's coming out next April. Um, but it's really connecting the present to the past, understanding that you cannot have present public policy without looking at the past. How do we get here? And therefore, what debt do we owe the people who are here and who are suffering the consequences of the sustainability challenges that we have today? Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. I mean, I think every challenge we're facing today, sustainability or otherwise, is is rooted in history. You know, thinking about Benton Harbor and what's happening there right now in terms of lead and the water, that's, you know, decades in the making, more than decades in the making. So. Yeah. And the the cool thing about Jamon is he's always going to do uh, an acknowledgement of the land that we stand on, um, uh, the indigenous land that we inhabit. But he's also going to highlight uh, the con the contributions of black Americans to what Detroit is today. And in his in his speech uh, yesterday at the press conference, he listed five facts that he wanted of people to know about Detroit. Number one, Detroit is the gateway to freedom, right? As the northern city that borders Canada, Jordan said he wishes Detroiters more fully understood that Detroit was sometimes the last stop on the Underground Railroad. Uh, Detroit's role in baseball history, uh, one of the founding teams of the Negro Baseball League, Jamon wanted to highlight. Jazz and blues were just as important as Motown in the city of Detroit, right? right. And then I'll throw in gospel i mean you know look at yeah. <laughs> look at the tremendous gospel rules here the battle for the battle for civil rights was also fought here 
And Detroit is the cradle of black nationalist thought and activism. I mean, I cannot wait to see the kind of narratives that cascade from, I don't know if he has an office or whatever. I don't know what this entails, okay. but it needs to be goes, more of the ceremony. It definitely we does. We need these stories to be told. Um, we really need to teach these stories to our young people and take Detroit history, black history as actual history worthy of being taught to kids. When young people learn this, it builds pride. It builds an understanding that you come from something great. You better say it. And, um, you know, we need to make sure that our Charles Wright Museum does a great job of having the kinds of exhibits that highlight these things, standing exhibits that highlight this information so that our young people can always walk through on an educational level and understand we're not coming from an inferior place, which is what the world says about us. Mm. We're coming from a place which really, um, you know, really was groundbreaking in so many ways. And that's something that um, in my study of history of the city of Detroit, I found so much pride. My people have been here since the 1920s, early 1990, 1919, mm. 1920s um, on, either, on both sides. And so reading about this and understanding what life was like when my parents were kids, my mom's 88 years old. Yeah. You know, it's really, really meaningful. So I'm so glad he's going to hold it up for other kids. Yeah. Our story does not begin with inferiority. It's I oh, love that. we. Yeah. I love that. In <laughs> um, uh, hot takes, Target. This is this is real hot take. <laughs> Target to open a new store in the city of Detroit, uh, right near the Whole Foods. This is by uh, Cranes Detroit. A small format outpost of the Minneapolis-based retail chain is expected to take 32,000 square feet feet in the development re generally referred to as south of mac avenue uh, the construction time frame has not been revealed but target um is coming much to the pleasure and exuberance and dismay of so many detroiters that i saw on my timeline last night what say y'all what say we have an adult conversation about this <laughs> i don't think I we was, can <laughs> i was i don't even remember what city i was well, in there, well, and there, i went into a, a small format target it's one of chicago and i that felt I love. like it was Damn. i was in cvs i was like it what like in the CVS, world right at, am yeah. i looking at i was so i was waiting for everything and instead it's the kind of thing and the placement is connected to the desire to address the um, the shopping needs of college students. But mm -hmm. it doesn't really help me because when I go to Target, most of the time I'm trying to get Luna toys or clothes. <laughs> and so I'm going to have to leave the city. And I leave, don't understand yeah. how a city with as much vacancy as Detroit in areas near downtown and, you know, areas west and east everywhere, we have all of this vacancy. Can't we get a real Target? I don't want to drive outside. And so I think some people are sort of like, huh, that's cool. But does Detroit want big box chains? Yes. Really? Yeah, I think that, you know, when you look at Meyer and the impact of Meyer on the east side and the west side, it the, the, those big box chains work. The first Target I remember going to was the Bel Air Shopping Mall. I remember that Target. Road. Yeah. Can we bring a Target back there? I'm not saying downtown, but I think that when you look and someone compared it to Meyer on Jefferson and hey, that's a beautiful Meyer. Have to be honest. I was I went in there for the first time the other day. I really enjoyed. It. I was disappointed that it was only self checkout though, but yeah. I I absolutely loved it. Yeah, but yeah. you know Meyer that that's Meyer's third store, not their first. Yeah. Target's first store and they say oh this is a good first step and I'm not convinced there will be a second step or a third step because from what I'm hearing in other places they're closing some of these stores in other urban areas still mm. so reopen the one at Bel Air and I'm going to celebrate reopen one somewhere else and I'm going to celebrate yes we want a big box store where we can get toys for our kids we don't have Toys R Us anymore yeah. that Target used to be right in the same shopping mall as Toys R Us and Kids I R Us sure was at Bel Air yes. that was the place that was the and spot. Home Depot, you right. get everything. <laughs> and now, you know, we still, I have to go so far. I'm like, we which do. distant target do I want to go to to get my needs met as a grandmother? Mm. <laughs> but <laughs> Although, I, I mean, I do think, I, I live in Woodbridge, so I don't live too far away from that nice. target. And so, yeah. I love uh, Woodbridge, I, by the I, way. I do, thank you. I do think that, like, there is a bit of a, a retail uh, desert for that those 
the types of products that Target may have. So I think it could fill a niche depending how well it does in terms yeah. of stocking and what it has. I mean, there's definitely leakage in Midtown. I'm wondering though, if I, if, if it's going to be reminiscent of, let's say like the small scale Target that's like on the South side, uh, of Chicago that looks more like, you know, like a CVS or a Rite Aid. I'm wondering if, if it will serve, you yeah. know, a different, you know, but, so I, I just hope it's not as small as some of them. Yeah. So the good news is I learned that some of the small format stores are like 12,000 to 20,000 square feet. And okay. this one is 33. Yeah. So it's real possible that you're going to have more goods to serve the population. And I hope we get them. Yeah. So there are people who were really happy. And then there were people who were mad. This is this is gentrification. And then there were people is- who were mad that I wasn't happy. <laughs> caught by a good friend of mine Donna Downer I was like wow friend, I'm calling you out she called me Donna Downer on Facebook I was like whoa <laughs> oh man it's not too far it's, well the target ain't too far from me and I, I happen to enjoy targets on uh, on Saturdays let me tell you during the, during the panoramic the panacea whatever we're calling it uh, Saturdays when everything else when, when everything was closed and Target was open. That was the place that I went to for community. I would walk. The, I, it was the one place I can go to get out of the house. So I, I got to say, I'm happy to see it. Well, I also think, you know, if it can if it can pull some leakage in from Amazon, from people ordering things online, then that that's also beneficial, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. I know we do. We order things that we would have to drive to a big box store yeah. online because the convenience, you know. So yeah. if it's if it's local, local, you're you're right. If it's local, local, and if it has toys and children's clothes, I'm gonna be super happy. If it doesn't, yeah. but it has adult clothes yeah. and household goods, I'll be kind of happy. I'm still looking. Can you for get my a case size. of toilet paper? Is the question. Uh, <laughs> nah, well, you know what I've not. read about these small format stores is a lot of times their packaging is also small, uh, and mm, so they yeah. have. Some Small roles because again, it's college student it's focused. It's real cute, yeah. Like University so, of Chicago yeah. students go to the one in the yeah. South Side, right? Yeah. Uh, so. What's up, Wayne State? You're you're gonna do well, and I'm not mm-hmm. against that. I just won't celebrate it until I can get the things I want to purchase. Sure. So I'm gonna wait and see. How about that? I'm gonna be an optimist and say maybe no more Donna Downer. No more Donna Downer. But you want to know the other thing that people aren't really talking about? We're talking about the Target, but there are supposed to be over 300 units above this Target, and I want to see how these units are going to be financed. What Mm. sort of uh, rates that they're going for? Is there? I'm for real. Okay, Orlando. That's what I'm. That's what I'm concerned about. Let me help you out. Yeah. They're not going to be affordable unless this is a, <laughs> unless this is a studio is on Woodward. They're going to be tax subsidized, and this is going to be considered progress. And I'm, I'm not saying same it is script, a, different same cast. script, different well, same script, just down the street. Um, <laughs> this is what we see all up and down, and and this is a decision. And I, I'm not a, I'm not opposed to people being able to move into cool new places downtown. I am keenly aware of a housing affordable crisis in our city and the impact of that crisis on depopulation of our city because people who don't can't afford $1,700 a month, $1,800 a month for a one or two bedroom apartment have to leave the city right Did now. Did I tell you I asked the mayor this question? I don't, I don't know if we had this conversation, but I happened to have the audience of Mayor Duggan uh, at the Mackinac Policy Conference and I asked him this question because I know that the, uh, the mayor and some of our congressional leadership is going to challenge the census results. But Mm -hmm. the census puts us at around 632,000. Again, a continual drop and decline in population. And I asked him, is there some sort of a linkage between the housing affordability crisis and depopulation? The affordable units that the city is subsidizing are mainly studio apartments and uh, they're incongruent for families. Families cannot reside there, right? And so families are leaving the city i know families that have left the city because they can't afford to live here in the city in quality affordable housing the mayor said to me (laughs) he said to me well families aren't trying to live in apartments they're buying houses they're buying houses from the land banks and the land bank and they're fixing it up and they're moving their families uh into the homes and i sort of like pushed back a little bit but you know he held his ground i think it is a a grave 
misstep, overlook, whatever, if we continue to build affordable units for people without families. Right. I, I think that it's a decision that we make. And I think yeah. a public policy decisions have public policy consequences. If we are intentional about keeping families, we're not going to just allow some of them. And some of them do our purchasing homes from the land bank. And, and fix them up. They got the money to do uh, but, it if but, they need affordable or units. Some of them okay. just know how to do I know people who are doing that. Okay. The question is the scale. How many units are being fixed up like that for families in the land bank in comparison to the number of people who are just looking for a place to live and don't have the time, energy, or resources to fix up a home? It's so much easier to move to Warren, to move to Harper Woods, to move to Roseville, to move to Southfield, to move to Oak Park, Lincoln Park, all of the parks. It's so much easier to do that than it is to stay in the city of Detroit. And I say this with love knowing people in my family and elsewhere who are trying to stay in the city and looking for quality, affordable housing. It's hard out here. Mm -hmm. And let's do more. And I think as we look at building a sustainable city, we can do, I don't even have a problem with downtown being for rich people, right? Downtowns all over America are for people with money. What I'm saying is we need to match that effort with an effort inside of neighborhoods, parallel effort to be as intentional about building up that neighborhood with affordable housing as we are building up downtown with high-end housing. And make no mistake, I understand there's nowhere in America where a downtown apartment is going to cost what it costs to live inside of a neighborhood. Legit. All right, that wraps up Hot Takes. If you have pieces that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on our socials at Authentically Detroit on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or you can email us at AuthenticallyDetroit at gmail.com. For our feature discussion this week, we are talking to Joel about a series of climate town hall meetings that the Office of Sustainability is scheduled to host throughout the first week of November. Joel, what is the Office of Sustainability hoping to glean from these town halls? No, I'm glad you asked, uh, Orlando. So we, we kicked off, well, we actually kicked off the Detroit climate strategy, actually right around the time the pandemic was, was, was really hitting hard, you know, in March of 2019. And so we actually ended up having to take a pretty big pause on that, given all the situations. <laughs> we that, all paused. Yeah, we, we all paused, paused right? <laughs> and so we, although... <clears throat> I did onboard a, a consultant team, and so they were doing um, some technical analyses, you know, for that uh, greenhouse gas assessment and some other things. But we really re-kicked it off uh, earlier this year in terms of, uh, you know, getting out there, getting things moving again. And so um, we're really – our, our goal of the office is that we're centering equity throughout the climate strategy. And so, and and so, the goal of these sessions is really to understand um, what is what are people's lived experiences around sustainability issues, uh, and how do we ensure that we're we're embedding those lived experiences and the challenges therein into the strategies that get created through the climate strategy. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and a, a few other pieces about the climate strategy. So, climate and obviously seems. Uh, kind of abstract for a lot of a lot of folks, and so we're really thinking about it in two different ways. So one way is we're thinking about um, how do we we need to reduce the amount of carbon pollution that we emit as a city, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the carbon so carbon pollution contributes to global warming, global climate change, the effects of which we're already experiencing today. Right, we've seen multiple flooding events this summer. Thirty thousand plus households flooded throughout the summer, and so we're also the second. The second part of the climate strategy is looking at um, adaptation strategies. How do we prepare ourselves for what we used to call our new climate future, but which is actually our climate future today that mm -hmm. we're already experiencing? So, mm -hmm. how do we enable um, residents, businesses? government institutions to be able to weather those impacts of climate change, just as flooding, high heat, power outages, et cetera, um, in a way that they're still able to thrive uh, and, and survive in, in, the, in, in our city. So those are two main focuses of it. And then we are embedding equity throughout that through variety of means, which I can talk about later. Well, I, that was my follow-up question. You said that uh, the office is centering equity, and I want to know exactly uh, what that means and what that looks like in practice. Right. Because equity, you, yeah. you hear that word a lot. What does that mean? Totally, totally. So um, 
So, you know, I really believe, obviously, equity is, uh, we want to th- see uh, outcomes that are equitable, but I also believe that in order to achieve those outcomes and make them as equitable as, pro- as, as possible, we need to embed equity into the actual process. And I also believe, um, you know, equity is a process that we need to become comfortable with. And part of part of pursuing equity is being uncomfortable and being okay with being uncomfortable. If that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. And so one thing that, um, and so, so really what, uh, what that is about for me is about opening ourselves up to other people's perspectives and really hearing those perspectives. And I so, like and so one thing that we built into the process was a climate equity advisory council. And so that was essentially, that is rather essentially, um, a, a group of residents, 13 residents from areas throughout the city that we, um, using analysis from U of M, we kind of, we looked at and, and understood that those areas are probably more vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. Yeah. And so we, we picked residents that had a variety of skill sets, a variety of, uh, of experiences, life experiences, and were, and were representative of that, of that multitude of, of geographic areas of places that are experiencing and will probably experience more climate vulnerability. And so they've been meeting on a monthly basis and they're really, um, They've developed through, um, we've engaged with the, um, some other, um, facilitators, um, and they are, uh, they've been developing equity tools mm. that they're applying to some of our, some of the project team's outputs to really kind of understand what are ways we could tweak what's being, what's being created to ensure that it will have a better equity outcomes. So the question I have, because I've appreciated, really appreciated your inclusive process for planning. We really, Um, it it is exactly what needs to happen in that position. Um, I had an opportunity to learn what a sustainability director was. And you came in and the first thing you did was you got the community engaged in the process and educated people and brought people along. You've created a really compelling agenda for the city of Detroit. Um, and, and equity is a huge issue. We know it's a huge issue. I was reading something about what would happen if Detroit's temperature just increased two degrees. Can you talk a little bit about some of the issues that you have um, gleaned during your time as sustainability director as concerns around climate equity? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so, so one thing I, I'll say, so, so in, so my, my office was created in 2017, um, and then we immediately embarked on the sustainability action agenda, which was essentially a strategic sustainability plan for the city to understand where we should be going, you know, how, how, how should we be addressing issues mm-hmm. uh, of sustainability. Can I just reiterate, that was one of the best planning um, processes that I've yeah. seen the city. Thank you. Yeah, we, we, we touched, we talked to over 6,000 Detroiters through uh, surveys, through focus groups. We had, we had uh, sustainability ambassadors uh, out in the community talking to folks. We had over 1,500 people respond to our survey. And, and, and in that survey, they said that um, a, a few kind of data points that I think point to climate vulnerability, and the survey is a little bit dated at, at, at this time, but again, it was over 1,600 folks that responded to that. And uh, the top housing challenges that that were identified was that you thirty three percent of folks identified utility affordability as a top housing challenge, mm-hmm. with housing afford housing affordability second at twenty two percent. So we know affordability overall is an issue, but I found it interesting that uh, utility affordability was actually the primary issue that folks identified. And we know that uh, frequently we talk about the utility cost burden, um, you know, be at, they usually say about like 10% of your income would be uh, the maximum for utility cost burden. And we know that um, I don't have the figures on me exactly, but we know that um, over, th- I believe over 30% of Detroiters um, actually experience a cost burden for utilities higher than that 10%. So that's an issue. Uh, we also th- 
we also learned that, um, you know, uh, one third of folks reported being impacted by flooding, um, 51% off someone often or very often and another 30% occasionally. Um, that's a, mo- that's a recent flood. So flooding survey. So we know that, um, you know, utility affordability, flooding are all issues that are tremendously, people are tremendously impacted by in the city. And we are seeing, already increased temperatures happening in the city, increased flooding happening in the city, all which, frankly, you know, impacts people's quality of life very intensively. Yeah, I mean, uh, when you look at the housing quality issue, we were just talking about it, and there's just a study that U of M um, conducted, I think, Bridge reported DMACS. on it. Yeah, the DMAX survey. Yeah, yes, the DMAX survey. survey mm-hmm. That 37,360 people in the city of De- households in the city of Detroit are dangerously inadequate. And it seems as though when you start adding flooding and temperature increases to an already dangerously inadequate shelter, um, now you are really looking at more than discomfort or quality of life. You're looking at life itself, right? Absolutely. Can people survive living in these environments where, um, you know, right now it is cold outside, y'all. It's <laughs> the Indian summer. I hate to say that because I don't even, I think that might be a negative statement. The elongated summer is over, Okay. And, and people still don't have furnaces cold. from and the flood. I mean, don't like, have furnaces. Not mm, a couple people. A yeah. lot of people mm-hmm. don't have furnaces. So we deal with these temperature extremes. Yes. One of the exciting things I'm excited about you working on and taking some leadership and actually partnering with us on is this <laughs> resilient resilient East Side initiative. Mm-hmm. Saying we can't fix thirty seven thousand three hundred and sixty houses in the next couple of years but maybe we can provide some alternative places of shelter in these extreme weather events. Yeah, absolutely. No. So uh, I'm very excited to be working with you on that, Donna, and, and the idea of, of, of a resilience hub, right. And trying to develop a network of those places, whether they be a rec center, whether they be a wellness hub, such as where we are sitting right now, whether they be a, 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 a daycare center, a child care center, and you know, making the places that people go to and spend time on a daily basis can be that can be a refuge for them in the case of a power outage, a flood emergency, a heat emergency, and then they can go there and be comfortable to be able to spend time in that place. So because there's there's been a number of studies of and not I'm not speaking necessarily in Detroit, but there's been a number of studies of like cooling centers um, throughout the country that many times they don't get utilized Mm -hmm. a lot. Yeah. Right. And so um, because they're, you know, there's this idea of like trusted voice, trusted messenger, trusted place. right? Right. And so you're if you're you know, uh, you're out of power, you're out of, you know, and you, you need to run your CPAP machine or whatever, you're not going to go to somewhere you've never been right. to, to do that. You're going to go to somewhere you trust. And so really, I think, you know, developing programming that makes people feel welcome in a place, I think is just as important as the other technical aspects, which I didn't really touch on. But the idea would be that you would have solar, you would have a battery, you would potentially have a generator such that if the power went out in the surrounding areas, that that place would still be able to maintain power. Yeah. Joel, how is the city prepared to respond to uh, what what we believe uh, residents are experiencing all over the city uh, in climate crisis, you know, flooded basements? And we talked to a resident earlier today who's working to get water out of her basement, right? The loss of some of the loss of furnaces and hot water tanks. And we're getting ready to go through a a Michigan winter. People are in climate crisis right now as we speak. And I'm sure within these town halls, residents who have the opportunity to speak will express that. How is the office of sustainability? How is the city prepared to respond to that? (laughs) That's a great question. It's a very hard question, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, um, you know, I I think, you know, obviously post flooding, there was a number uh, of cleanup efforts that were done that were helping the city helped. um, I wish I knew the number off the top of my head, Um, but a, a significant number of folks helped 
were helped to get their basements cleaned out. Yeah. Um, you know, yep. um, at no cost. And so certainly I think that emergency response was, what was, was, was a, was an overall effective one. Um, but I think that, you know, what I'm, I've been talking with some of my, uh, code director, other directors at the city and thinking about how do we, how do we scale up programs that can help people make their homes resilient to these flooding events. Right. But, but you know, when I look at what the city really wants to change things, the city says, we're going to tear down every blighted structure in the city of Detroit. And we're going to raise however many, so far, I think we spent about $600 million and counting demolishing homes. This is bringing it to scale. Yes. Or we say we're going to raise this money to for strategic neighborhoods and there's this big price tag attached to it. And then when it comes to furnaces, it's like, well, we're going to try to piece together this resource and help people with this resource. And it feels as though the scale of intervention Mm. in these homes is so much less than the scale even of tearing down a blighted home where people don't live. And I'm not saying blighted homes don't need to come down. I'm just thinking through the 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 scale of things the thirty million dollars for home repair out of an eight hundred million dollar budget I'll do the math in a few minutes but I think it's a very small percentage of those dollars when you look at that I guess the question that some of us have is when are we going to do it at scale mm. and my other question is what is infrastructure is a furnace infrastructure certainly infrastructure That's inside a my home great question but you know what, what is, is infrastructure, infrastructure? yes and mm-hmm. will the city make meaningful investments in the kind of infrastructure that we feel because mm-hmm. a combined sewer system sounds really good to, you know separating mm-hmm. the sewer systems i need help in my home right now and it's a matter of life or death for some people and or it's a matter of staying in detroit or running away because you can no longer afford to stay here and live here safely and happily yeah no it's a great question i mean i i think to address this flooding issue i think that we need to do things at every scale Right. I think we saw that in the flooding issue, uh, unfortunately, uh, our basements are part of the infrastructure system. Right? We, we, we observe that very intimately. Unfortunately, uh, you know, family members, many neighbors experience that. And so I think we need to recognize that we need to work with we work with residents on the ground to think about how do we reduce their household's potential. So one, just to back up, we, when we talk about climate vulnerability, there's mm-hmm. three different components. We talk about exposure. So that's like, what event are you exposed to? Mm-hmm. But then there's like adaptive capacity. Like, uh-huh. how are you able to adapt as a household? Right. Or as a system. Teach us this vocabulary. And and then there's also sensitivity is the other piece of it. Right. And, and so that's like, how, how, how sensitive are you as a household? You know, typically elderly households are more sensitive with those with a medical challenge or medical condition. And so we're actually doing a climate vulnerability analysis and map for the whole city to identify those most vulnerable areas using those three different factors. But, Anyway, I digress a little bit into the data. I apologize. But um, I, I do believe that we do need to address the uh, flooding vulnerability at kind of different scales, right? So we need to address the household scale. And I agree, Donna, we need to address it at a, at a massive scale. I, I don't disagree with you there. Um, and then we need to address it at a neighborhood scale, right? Mm-hmm. Can we do neighborhood-based green stormwater infrastructure or even gray storm, gray stormwater infrastructure such that if there's a neighborhood that experiences flooding, how do we pull some of that water out of the system at that point? And then there's the larger sewer separation projects, yes. which there's a whole series of seeing the spreadsheet of prioritized lists and what's going to have the most impact. And we need to find the money and do those ones that are going to have the most impact. So, you know what else we need? We need the director of climate sustainability to be a member of the mayor's cabinet. And we need the director of sustainability to be engaged in every single decision around uh, around development, around housing, around everything that we do. If we're really serious about sustainability, sustainability is not one of those things you do as a sidebar. It has to be integrated into the central part of the work of workings of the city. Because one your of the ability to just I gather loved, I mean, I think data and and you know engage folks. I mean, it's it's so 
valuable to the sustainable agenda in the city of Detroit. And And I was going to ask about that, Donna, like interdepartmental integration at the city. Like, what does that look like? Even beyond integration power, right? You've got to give power to the position of the sustainability director. And I know I'm preaching to the choir because I'm certain that you, like anybody who has this knowledge, has a wish that your knowledge can be used in every realm. But we want to see you at the table when the community benefits are being negotiated. We want to see you at the table when we're talking about what's going on with the stormwater so that we can make sure that all of this knowledge you have and all of these contacts you have with the community are being taken into account at the time decisions are being made, not after the fact, and again, not as icing on a cake that somebody else baked, you know, but it, icing's delicious. But, you know, we really want this to be part of how the city does business. And I was really excited. It felt like in the city charter recommendations, one of the things they were looking at was building up a department of sustainability. Are there examples of cities where this is being done? I'm sure there's many examples of city where, where cities where it's being done. Uh, uh, um, you know, uh, through th- actually, one of the things I've been working on this week is uh, I'm that we're doing a virtual conference for the Urban Sustainability Directors Network, and that actually something that gives me gives me life because I'm able to talk to my colleagues around the country. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's a number of cities where where I think it's being being centralized, and I, you know, I can't disagree with what you're saying. Joel, I want to uh, ask you about the plan for the town halls. So next week is also an election week, and I know that uh, the town halls are scheduled for the first week of November. Can you let residents know how they can plug in? Absolutely. So uh, if you go to DetroitMI.gov forward slash climate, DetroitMI.gov forward slash climate, uh, you can register for those town halls. So there's going to be one on the 9th. There's going to be one on the 10th and one on the 13th. And uh, they're in the evenings and they're during the day so that folks who need to work during the day are able to access those. They're all going to be virtual. So you can log on and, and become a part of kind of part of the conversations. So Detroit, if you are interested in number one, making energy and water bills more affordable improving access to reliable transportation, making parks and green spaces welcoming to everyone, improving air quality and reducing asthma, building resilience into the day-to-day lives of Detroiters and inclusive public engagement. Tap in to uh, these town halls. While we have you here, I do have a couple of questions about sustainability and where we are right now. In addition to planning, Mm -hmm. what else is being done to improve sustainability in the city of Detroit right now? How is the city, you know, making good on this investment? Yeah, absolutely. No, it's a great question. Well, so one thing is that we are undergoing a dramatic expansion of our recycling infrastructure. Um, And so we're going to be both expanding uh, residential recycling as well as launching a commercial recycling route so that businesses that want to recycle are able to do so. We're uh, rolling out recycling uh, both to city parks and also to city buildings. So I think that's a really exciting uh, thing that my office was involved in. We actually were able to get a grant uh, for helping to do that as well as put in city money to do that. So uh, that's one one exciting thing. We're thinking um, in terms of city operations about how do we integrate electric vehicles into city operations, obviously reducing emissions, reducing carbon from city vehicles. Uh, we're looking at how do we you know retrofit city buildings to be both resilient to climate but also reduce you know, carbon emissions. Uh, so those are a few examples. We are going to be, we are getting several electric buses. DDOT is as well uh, to pilot that technology. The heavy duty is maybe not as far along as some of the light duty stuff. So those are a few examples I, I have, but I mean, uh, you know, I think every, so the sustainability action agenda really laid out a very broad vision of how do we have, um, you know, healthy, thriving Detroiters? How do we have, uh, how do we have affordable and high quality homes? How do we have, uh, uh, you know, clean and connected neighborhoods? Um, and so then, and then how do we have an equitable green city? And the equitable green city really is largely about climate, both 
our low carbon future, um, reducing the amount of carbon as well as uh, getting prepared for the impacts of climate that we're already seeing um, down the pike. So um, one exciting thing that I announced with Palencia Mobley, Deputy Director at, at DWSD, was actually in the uh, neighborhood right off of Rouge Park. Mm-hmm. We're actually creating a green stormwater infrastructure thing that's going to actually take 12, 1,200 houses off of the combined sewer and use a, 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 a constructed wetland lake in the park to be able to store that water so that it slows it gets down slows it going into this combined sewer system which is pretty exciting i think we need to replicate that and do things things like that through more throughout the city certainly yeah we have some ideas um here on the east side um, for things that can be done to help slow the movement of water into the areas like jeff chalmers um, where you have so much flooding we actually have work that was done by the university of michigan um, a few years ago, I think it's called the Stronger Together um, Improvement Plan or something like that, where they looked at how we could use the net, um, the vacancy to promote strengthening and strengthening transforming. And transforming. Thank you. I knew it was strong. <laughs> I'm like, I, I'm strong. like, what are you talking about? I worked on that uh, one. Yeah, yeah. Strengthening, <laughs> transforming. Thank you. But one of the things we looked at was green infrastructure in the um, Riverbend neighborhood, which is just. Um, north of Jeff Chalmers Mm -hmm. and all of the vacancy there, we could create wetlands, we could create Mm. bioswales and rain gardens and do things at scale to reduce the flow of water from one part of, you know, uh, into that neighborhood. The Mm. other thing that I'm really becoming fixated on is this um, Oakland Macomb interceptor Mm. and the idea that Russ Ballant popularized that we could create retention basins that would slow the return of that water into the The pumping stations. So, I mean, you know, we can look at things that don't require the separation. Mm -hmm. And if the city is serious about green infrastructure, it feels to me like there are projects that we have conceptualized, not designed, but conceptualized. We know where the lots are. We know who owns them. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a good stock project where we have identified several um, places where we can um, divert stormwater from the streets in an area that is just um, west of here. Um, To what extent can we work with your office to at least bring these concepts to the attention of DWSD, which says it wants to invest more in green infrastructure so that we can begin doing things on the east side? Happy to see it happen near Rouge. Well, we want it here too. Sure. No, absolutely. No, I, I think the more of those projects we can get done and get moving, uh, absolutely. So definitely work with my office to, to, to move some of that stuff forward and willing to be an advocate for that. Cause I think, again, you know, one of the, one of the goals and the actions in the sustainability action agenda was, you know, increase the amount of distributed green stormwater infrastructure. And so mm. I think, you know, we need the support of community partners to be able to do that. Um, certainly. And um, yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, maybe that's one of the ways that we can work with your office is that you can be a connector to yes. some of the city offices so that at least they can, you can c- connect what we're doing in our community level to the stated goals and objectives of the various cities, city departments because it's really hard to navigate sometimes. Sure. No, I mean, that often tends to be my role is connecting, connecting folks uh, at the city. Absolutely. And, and, and I know we can't, we're not always uh, as accessible as we should be. So certainly uh, do definitely want to play that role where I'm able to. Yeah, for sure. All right, Joe, thank you so much for coming on. It's always a pleasure to have you. You're welcome. You're welcome. I, I, uh, I, I am honored to be on the show. I'm a frequent, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a frequent listener uh, to the show and, and I get, get lots of great information and perspectives and grounding, uh, when I listen to it. So I'm, I'm very honored to be able to actually be on the show and be a part of it. And I think you, you all have filled, uh, for me, at least, you've you've filled a hole in the local news and perspectives infrastructure that I don't think was there before, before wow. your creation uh, as Authentically Detroit. So I definitely appreciate you, wow. you all. So. We appreciate you. Bless you, yeah, man. We are Thank so you. honored. You we know, are honored. Um, <laughs> it, it, honestly, when we started this venture a couple of years ago, we, we had no idea. So we every time we, we hear something it. like that, it's just heartwarming. It's, <laughs> it's in Orlando. Like, oh, my gosh. In Orlando, um, Authentically Detroit is now its 
own entity. Yes. It is no longer grown. just a project that has no home. It's its own <laughs> entity, Authentically Detroit LLC. Yes. Oh, it's an LLC it, now. It is an LLC it is. now uh, nice. because we have decided that it's something worth investing in and growing. And so um, you might be the second guest we've had. I think the Since first the one LLC. was the debate. Yeah. And yeah. Then, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, welcome. Wow, that's <laughs> exciting. Yes. That's very exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. Congrats to you too, Joel, and good luck with the town halls and um the the department and everything that you're doing. We are big Joel Harani Harris fans over here. If you have topics that you want discussed on authentic on authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at authentically Detroit or email us at authentically Detroit at gmail.com. It's time for shout outs. Donnie, do you have any shout outs today? Oh. <laughs> Once again, I want to shout out Samaritan Manor. Yes. I want to shout out um, Reginald Hartsfield, who is one of the owners of Samaritan Manor until the end of this year, and my friend David Turner, who helped connect us, as well as everybody who just gave us. Um, you know, information. I want to shout out the state of Michigan for completing its investigation and finding citations. She's not playing. Um, and <laughs> and shout out to my mother um, for yeah. being such a strong woman and not allowing herself to go, you know, to, to just succumb to whatever kinds of treatment um, people were willing to give her. Um, I'm really happy about that. I'm feeling optimistic. And it's good to see you feeling optimistic and better. I know that Thank this you. has been a tough few weeks for you and it was hard mm -hmm. to watch my friend go through that, but I'm glad that we're seeing light at the end of the tunnel. I want to shout out Donna, our uh, Facebook audience. This is, we are live streaming on Facebook as we are recording this uh, episode. Um, and, you know, it's been uh, pretty interactive so far. So without an announcement or any uh, publicity, surrounding this um you know thank you all so much for taking the time to view us on facebook also next week uh we will be hosting a series of interviews uh, on election day to sort of wrap around what happens at our municipal elections so be sure uh to tune in next week we're gonna have some of everybody up in here so stay tuned joe you have any shout outs yeah definitely i do i want to shout out uh, all the members of the climate equity advisory council uh who have been serving over the last four months as, uh, again, I, I talked about them earlier, but really digging into some kind of wonky topics and really trying to offer some constructive feedback to me and my office and my the consultant team that I have on board. So thank you all to that. And thanks to the engagement team who have been helping to facilitate that whole process. Definitely appreciate that. Uh, I want to shout out to, I want to shout out to everyone who is, is, is put their hat in the ring for elected office because that is a challenging thing to do. And sure I appreciate is. that. And we need good people in those positions. And so thank you to all, all who is are participating in this in an in a active way. And then just shout out to my family, uh, my, my son, Theo and my daughter, Ruby. Uh, that's all. Oh, wow. Hey, Theo and Ruby. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Listen, we thank you all so much for listening. Until next time, we want you to catch the wave.